You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air Nipe here with Always. Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 2009 Ratsy Zombie movie, Dead Snow. Do you know why I keep saying Ratsy instead of Nazi? No. It was a tendency in old Marvel comics to refer to them as Ratsies in the old Captain America comic books way back in the day. Isn't that strange? That is. Was it a Red Scare thing? Was it a... Um... Cold War problem? Is that why they would say that? I think it was just a pejor a fun pejorative slang term. I think it was it was supposed to be calling them rats and Nazis, and also maybe it had something to do with them not wanting to habitually uh, write the word for some reason. I mean, a lot of old, uh, early comic book creators uh, happened to be Jewish. So they might have uh, not really cared to write the word too often. But the first Captain America had him punching out Hitler in a sort of like, not this time, Hitler uh, fashion. So, you know, there's that. It could be a rat lines thing. If If it's Captain America and they're dealing with American or Canadian Nazis that were smuggled in here by the church along what's called the Nazi rat lines, that could be it. That could definitely be it. Because they are like rats infiltrating. They're running from a sinking ship, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I had never followed Captain America. It's one of the one of the many comic book heroes I don't like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Would never mm-hmm. read. But uh, yeah, interesting. Rotsies. And if you spell it with an O, mm-hmm. like Dead Snow, then you've got Rotsy, a very cool term for a zombie Nazi. A Rotsy. As we discussed or as 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 our dear listeners know at this point we are going to be discussing a lot of uh nazi zombies nazi zombies is a fascinating subgenre of film uh you can see them in all kinds of films like zombie lake or shockwaves um there was that bunker zombie movie that came out in the aughts or something like that that i can't the the name is escaping me right now um there's lots of wild ass shit people seem to love to make bad guys nazis in narratives i have a theory about why the nazi zombie thing became prevalent would you like to hear it go on because i do know the producer writer director tommy workola who basically just talks about what's more evil than a zombie so i want to know your theory you know the old adage in a lot of horror that involves infection um or even vampirism you know you're not killing your brother you're killing the thing that killed them the they always sort of try to lay into you in zombie narratives this was a person. They had a life. They, you know, there's that famous scene in The Walking Dead where they pull out a zombie's wallet and they talk about who this person was and all that kind of shit. But 
if you're killing a zombie who happens to be dressed like a Nazi, you could probably assume they were a bit of a prick in real life, too. <laughs> so um, I think it became prevalent because it's like guilt-free mass murder. You don't ever have to feel bad about killing a Nazi zombie. You might feel a little bad for killing like a different kind of zombie. But if they're wearing a swastika, it's double bad. Very, very true. Before they even get their little zombie rot teeth around your throat, they're already the enemy. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm sure that for some very deluded people out there, this is a triumphant story. But yeah, this is such a fantastic blend. I like zombie slash zombie hookers. I love zombie mm -hmm. hookers. I love zombie hordes. I love zombies as creatures. I love zombies as... Um, underlings to other demonic type creatures mm -hmm. i like zombie rednecks i like zombie slash pretty much anything i like zombie animals zombie dogs are super fun i like zombie tiger <laughs> you know zombie fucking marines i like zombie slash anything i really like zombie nazis because of like what you pointed out it's not just that they are more evil which was the, the goal of like, let's make a zombie movie. How do we make it even more evil? Make them zombie Nazis. Okay, that's ultra evil. That is the ultra evil. We've all agreed pretty much worldwide. That is the height of evil that we've achieved. So yeah, it is also fun because it is like, it's not even like punching someone in the dark. It's punching someone in broad daylight and everyone cheering. It's punching someone with a Pepe pin. And and we were told that it was okay to punch uh, Nazis, uh, a sentiment I wholeheartedly agree with. I was very interested to do this film with you because this sticks in my mind as a film that came out just when I was starting to get serious about my horror plus ways. This came out in 2009. And I was, uh, I don't know if I had really done anything significant at that point. Maybe I had started Splatter Pictures or it was an inkling of an idea or something. Maybe I had doodled Noose for the first time in 2009, I don't know. But it was something that was on my radar because, oh, I should pay attention to this because it's in all the horror magazines and people on the budding social medias were all kind of talking about this. It's so one of the movies that first sticks out in my mind that crossed my threshold that way. Uh, where did you encounter this film? This was one that was recommended to me uh, after moving here, actually. There was a couple of years where I was very busy with um, applying for school and funding to go to school and then beginning journalism school here. Uh, I watched some movies and like Trick or Treat stands out and uh, Human Centipede as films that that made it through that barricade that was my schooling and paying very strict attention to my future and, and planning and learning and all of those things. Um, so a lot of movies did make it through that, that barricade of time. I just had no time or, or attention, but this was one that was recommended to me by Howard of Ottawa Horror. Mm. We'd gone to see, I think it was Rare Exports. Mm -hmm. And I just, I love this Northern European invasion into our horror. We'd gone through the J-horror revolution. We'd gone through a found footage revolution. So it was 
looking at other countries horror that was being created and rare exports was one that i just loved and he's like oh if you like this aesthetic and just this a little more maverick way of making films and the horror from a different point of view dead snow is super fun and everyone loves killing a bunch of fucking nazis mm -hmm. right so yeah and it is absurd it does have its absurd moments as well and it's that mix of absurdity and dark very dark and very brutal fairly visceral mm -hmm. horror that i just love it's not a horror comedy to me although that's what it is billed as it is straight up horror with some absolutely absurd moments that don't seem like scripted comedy it's what would happen it just ends up being funny i actually wholeheartedly agree with you in that sense i remembered this movie being funnier than it actually is. I was watching this film with Cass and they had never seen it. And I was excited to show it to them because they absolutely adore zombies. Any film with zombies in it, Cass really hyper analyzes what kind of zombies. Are they fast? Are they slow? Can they move tools? How does the infection spread? How fast do people turn? They they, are, they hyper analyze everything about these zombie films, just in a way that I've never seen before. And uh, I was happy to show them this because they're a big fan of of uh, foreign horror takes on zombie, like everything that was coming out of Korea and Japan and and all that kind of stuff they were very impressed by and they were getting caught into the jump scares very early on into this film and i kept i wanted to interject because they were saying oh wow like I, I can't believe this this film is getting me like this it's it's like these jump scares are fucking working and, and i say, like, oh yeah they're they're not gonna and i and i can't and i wanted to interject because they were getting a little like in that fear mode that they love, but still like getting really engaged. And I didn't want them to be disappointed because I said, oh, just so you know, this is going to turn into a full blown Shaun of the Dead style comedy film. Because that's how I remembered it because I had remembered people billing it as a horror comedy for so long. And honest to fucking God, aside from a couple of, fuck yeah moments of violence that are in tons of horror movies like this like that one scene in the descent where tons of those cave creatures get killed and you're like fuck yeah but no one would call that comedic it's just it's cathartic not comedic and so yeah this idea of this being a comedy is so far removed from what i recognize it now the sequel red versus dead I'm convinced is more openly comedic, if I remember correctly. If I remember correctly, yeah, I agree with that. Mm -hmm. And it's not, it's relying a little more on, on one-liners and slapstick. Mm -hmm. Me too. I bought the Blu-ray whenever that became available in the West, and I watched it the day I bought it, and it there it sits on the shelf, and I've not watched it again. It's not that I didn't like it, it's just there's a lot of movies to watch. I'd watched this on Netflix, mm -hmm. I believe, at the time, and that was about 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. And mm -hmm. I had trouble finding it again, so I had to rent it from YouTube, which is awesome that YouTube has rentals. I like that. 
but it wasn't easy to find, so I don't know how much luck I'll have finding digitally the uh, sequel. No, I have. Listeners won't be able to see this. I have this ridiculous triple feature DVD. I'm going to show it to Lydia. And on this, I already told Lydia these, but on this triple feature is Dead Snow, which is why I bought the DVD. I'm pretty sure this was like $9 or something. And then the Ty West film, uh, House of the Devil, got that on there. And then the Shannon Elizabeth vehicle, the Night of the Demons remake. Uh, Baffling, baffling triple feature, but here we go. <laughs> what a warped thing this was um mentioned and i when you said you had a triple feature i thought it was the one that chris talked about in the bind torture cast episode on pontypool because he had pontypool on a triple feature called zombies with an exclamation mark or three mm-hmm. and it had <laughs> if i recall correctly pontypool and dead snow and maybe 28 days later but it was it, none of them were Romero zombies. None That's of them were. None of them were like it's a meteor. It's unexplained. Um, it was cursed zombies, audio viral zombies, and then the the semi unexplained virus that hits everyone in twenty eight days later. It wasn't just this like nebulous zombie, and they weren't rising from the graves. It was mm-hmm. infecting living people and those sorts of things. So, like, very different zombie movies. Like, hardly zombie movies in some very ardent zombie cult. (laughs) I don't know how to say it. Very strict rule followers when it comes to the zombie rules, the Romero rules or whatever rules Mm -hmm. you have, but your fast or slow zombies. All of those movies, like, really went against it. And that's what I like the most about dead snow is like that it is a fresh different zombie and i that's what i like about all of those movies because i'm i'm very tired of like typical zombies rising from the graves like we've seen so much of that zombie fatigue definitely sets in and i get it walking dead was no help at all but this Mm -hmm. i found very refreshing and i could watch 20 of these i could watch a whole show about this i think that when you incorporate nazis into your undead you get into it uh, a secondary layer of lore that i find extremely compelling this is why the film frankenstein's army was so mesmerizing to me why the comic book series hellboy is so fascinating to me i love the thule society stuff and you can it's not a stretch of the imagination to not only think of the 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 Nazis back in during World War II, who very openly and that we know as a fact did all kinds of weird experimentation with super science, with um, mysticism, with uh, psychic shit, like all of like I guess psi program, like what the fuck, the. All of these things that you could say that they did research into, then you take that extra leap of saying, what if that actually bore fruit as opposed to just being a colossal waste of time and money because they were all insane. Then you get this added, that's when you get a film like Shockwaves, which at its core would be kind of dull if it was just straight up 
zombies. That's it, it's it's about zombies that walk in from the water, and that's not very interesting. But if you make it a science experiment, and you have uh, you know, P put Peter Cushing in there, and all of a sudden it becomes like this very compelling classic that a lot of people like to talk about. Dead Snow, you you automatically have my interest because this is a winter horror film in a beautiful, beautiful location. Oh my God, could I just look at these mountains all day long? And then you put zombies in it, and then you put them in those, sorry to say, kind of cool zombie uniforms. <laughs> And 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 then you you have you know the 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 look of uh, Colonel Herzog in in there, and you just have my attention. And then you make it more of like a mystical curse, as opposed to any sort of real infection. Uh, but fuck all that, Lids. What is Dead Snow even about, anyways? This is about knowing the lay of the land. This is akin to every other rural horror of don't just walk in the fucking cabin. You gotta not only knock first, but you should know your surrounding and your environment and know the lore of the place. Like there is something definitely to be said in this movie and in our lives to learn about the areas where you live and the places you play. Go to a fucking community museum once in your life. Okay. It's not really about community <laughs> museums. It is about Nazis. And that's like, we spent some time before the show talking about Nazis. Because we're recording this during a time when we have a little bit of a protest going on downtown Ottawa. And we noticed that, isn't it neat that we got to pause talking about the Nazis downtown to talk about the Nazis in the beautiful, beautiful Norwegian countryside like absolutely beautiful. I totally agree with you there. This is a very fucking beautiful movie. But we're also recording this as the 188th episode of Dead Air Podcast. And I apologize for that coincidence because 88 is a, the number 88 when, when written out is a hate symbol. And I'm very aware of this. And it is just 100% coincidence. And sure, it works for the subject matter to a certain extent, but it is a coincidence and absolutely unfair in a way so apologies for that but it is just that weird coincidence which we've fallen into weird coincidences before haven't we yeah there's been times in which we hit certain anniversaries where we didn't mean to uh there was one time where we released uh cujo on national man's best friend day or or like love your damn dog day it was dog day it was, dog day. It was a damn dog day and it was dog day, uh, and that is uh, when we released Cujo. So this is just a, a coincidence, and the, yeah, we are enduring a, an absolute uh, farce of a protest in our fair city while we're recording this. Hopefully, by the time this episode is released, somebody decides to actually do something about that. But that's neither here nor there. I don't want to get into the whole thing, because... We already have a whole thing to discuss, and it's all of the horror movie references. You can always tell when a writer or director loves scary movies and then happens to make one, because they are going to toss in some names. They're going to be some ones that everybody knows. You're going to talk about Evil Dead 1 and 2. You're going to have a little bit of uh, reference to Friday the 13th, and then 
one of the most left field shit April Fool's Day. Man, what a reference. Which is weird, though, because originally, as they're hiking toward this cabin, where they're supposed to meet one of their friends, one of the girlfriends, Sarah, was supposed to ski ahead of them and meet them at this cabin that they're all hiking Mm -hmm. to. Uh, While they're hiking away, they're talking about movies. But they originally started talking about horror films where they can't use their cell phones. And then they start naming films and they're like, yeah, but the cell phones weren't invented then. And then they just carry on. And April Fool's Day is one of her Mm -hmm. suggestions. And it is kind of left field, although it doesn't fit into the little horror game that they're playing while they're walking. Uh, I rarely ever played these horror games that people do while they're killing time, you know, on a road trip or whatever. Um, So I don't know. Was this one that you've ever played? Listen, what do I look like? Fucking Kevin Williamson going to fucking start like saying everyone should just fucking watch prom night because they'd understand what the hell is going on a little bit. No, I never. I, I always describe my horror watching experiences as quite monastic and uh, a solitary experience. And I never I don't know anybody, you know, enough that would except for you. But I didn't meet you until I was almost 30. So and and even then, doesn't it feel a little quizzy? Doesn't it feel a little gatekeepy? Like I'm I, like I'm cred checking you. It feels like cred checked tre- checking to me. It's I don't. It's it's like name name three songs. Uh, what's your favorite? What's your favorite album? Name three albums, but you can't do it. It, it. it seems kind of like that because I think it's really unfair to unless you're dealing with a crowd that is obnoxiously into horror. Here's a great example. Do you remember when you and I played that horror trivia game? Yeah. That Christmas, I also got that horror trivia game, but I got a huge version of it. So mm-hmm. I, there's like pieces and all kinds of stuff. I don't know if it's the deluxe edition or whatever it the is. The full Trivial Pursuit, because you can get Trivial Pursuit just the questions to go with the board if you already have the board. So, yeah. Yes. So it's it's beautiful and it's awesome, and I've never played it. And here's why. Cass said this quite succinctly to me when I was kind of complaining that no one wanted to play with me. And they said, Wes, if you can't get those answers, what the fuck makes you think any of us can get those answers? If you can't, if you get a trivia question and you can't answer it, we definitely can't answer it. And I was, I was thinking to myself, all right, I guess. Now I wouldn't think that if I was with you and Chris, uh, but there's been something going on lately where we guys we can't hang out and play horror trivia pursuit. So I just have a, a a game in my hutch that I can't play. But I feel like playing horror quiz games like this is not something that I would ever do because I don't know enough people who are into it like I'm into it, and I'd feel like I was sort of shoving my hobby in people's faces like baby pictures. Not to nitpick too much about the reference to April Fool's Day. April Fool's Day, um, they're not going to a cabin. It's a beach house. So I technically, I wouldn't, it doesn't really fit. It's it's young people going to a house. But the whole thing is Muffy or Buffy or whatever the fuck that ridiculous character's name is. Is they're trying to, the whole premise of that movie is t- to host murder mysteries at this lake house or beach house or something like that. Like it's on sticks. You know what I mean? It's like the house of the mutilator. Like, it's like this big fucking thing right on the... To me, a cabin is a thing... It can be lakeside, but it pretty much has to look like a cabin, and it has to 
be more about it being in the woods, I feel. I don't know. No, exactly. I agree that April Fool's Day was not a good entry, but she was trying to impress the horror movie geek. And let's be honest here. He's the only guy that gets laid in this entire movie. So props to the horror movie guy. That is, let me ask you this, Lids, because I was thinking about beauty standards. This this is how, this is what horror ta- uh, teaches us. You have this guy who gets laid literally while he's taking a shit and he's kind of overweight, kind of plain looking. He dresses like a slob. He's he's wearing barely fitting dirty looking jogging pants and a filthy looking brain dead t-shirt. I mean, I like the brain dead t-shirt. You don't see that every day. I like the brain dead t-shirt too. Oh, totally. Totally agreed. But I was just thinking, if this was a Western movie as opposed to a Norwegian movie, this would be the funny friend. Or this would be the the booze hound, comic relief, maybe frat fucker, like, uh, like the uh, what's-his-face from Demon Knight. You know, that type of person who doesn't get laid. But in here, this girl who is, you know, very traditionally beautiful, like, cannot wait to jump on this guy's dick. And then after she does, he doesn't seem very appreciative. And he seems, like, even more slovenly than he did before. It's like this happens to him all the time, which is great. And the, the horniest guy, the guy that's always talking about the women and the sex and all that, he gets no attention at all. And it just shows a really, a very different attitude towards sex, sexuality, what is sexy, and what is the, you know, and what the payoff actually is. You know, it was very, it was very strange. And the fact that they're banging in an outhouse is just so gross. And it's always, that grosses me out. But then I was reminded while we were watching this, Chris and I, uh, I brought up how cold it is, and I know how cold it is outside right now here. We're experiencing the same sort of cold. They wouldn't be able to smell anything, luckily, except that he just went to the bathroom. So it does stink, he, but he, not as bad as a typical outhouse in summer. The hand that he wiped his ass with, she's sucking on his fingers. There is no way to wash your hands there. That's fucked up. Fucked up, man. Yeah, I never thought about how fucked up that is. That is that scene just became all the more fucked up after I tried to sanitize it with a fucking frigid cold. <laughs> Could you imagine? Hey, I just wipe my ass. Want to give my want to give my digits a little suckle? Gross. Oh, that's dude. disgusting. Yep, super disgusting. <laughs> so aside from the scatological aspects of this fucking movie, um, no, they they get to this cabin and Sarah hadn't arrived. We were treated before the credit sequence to who we suspect is Sarah running through the forest being chased by Nazis. Uh, Nazis. Being chased by zombies. It's not apparent that they're Nazis yet at this point. But So we have an idea that there is a menace in the woods and it is a zombie of some sort because we get to see glimpses of them here and there. They do an interesting job of, I guess by the halfway mark, it's very apparent that they are Nazi zombies. We get lots of full frontal zombie, but that first setup, say the first, I don't know, 20 minutes, half hour, they do the don't show the whole monster thing quite well. Would you agree? 
Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that assessment. I think that this film shows a lot of restraint, which is another reason why I think it would fail in a comedic sense for the category of horror comedy. I think maybe now that I'm thinking about it, people might consider this a comedy because the concept is so absurd. But watch those initial sequences, particularly when you are, yes, the opening music uh, choice is, is silly. Uh, it, you know, I can't remember the name of that overture, but it's, it's very famous. What is it, Ride of the Valkyries or something? No, that's different. It's something. It's the Sugar Plum Dance. It's a Tchaikovsky song from yeah. the uh, Nutcracker Suite. So, it, again, it's very famous. It's very distracting, I find. And it completely bleeds any menace or horror out of this. But if you were to look at the cinematography objectively, it's all in silhouette. It's quite, quite scary. And this area is quite dark when it's at night. So that in itself is very menacing. You know something is afoot. You're treated to a rather extended sequence of daytime snow hijinks. And then you are treated to a lot of night stalking scenes. And you can really see when you're those sequences in which it's snowing and it's nighttime and they're shining flashlights into the darkness. It is as effective as any horror film could ever be. And uh, again, it's showing tremendous restraint. And then on top of all of that, you have something which I was struggling to think of. And maybe you can come up with an example. You have the, the mysterious old traveler show up to the cabin. I find his whole disposition hilarious because he, he has a lot of boomer qualities to him where he kind of comes in and he's like, you fucking young people, I bet you all have pronouns or whatever his, he wouldn't, he didn't say that, but that's basically his attitude as far as I'm concerned. He takes a sip of their coffee, takes four puffs of one of their cigarettes, fucking t opens one of their beers, takes a swig of that, leaves it all behind. But in the meantime, there is, he will tell a story for three to five minutes of, of an uninterrupted story no other dialogue except for this guy talking and it, it it's kind of like that long exposition scene in targets that boris karloff had in 60 1964's uh, targets and this sequence goes on and on and on as he tells the story about this place and this regions can you think of i know i just mentioned a film but can you think of something more modern where they would show this kind of patience? Or is this a very Norwegian thing? The only films that come to mind, maybe have, one of them has world influences. Well, this one filmmaker's milieu has world influences, and that's Quentin Tarantino. A lot of his films have many scenes like this, but it's a very different genre, and he is, he is a film student's filmmaker, right? So he mm -hmm. is pulling from this world cadre of films that behave like this so i'm not sure where that influence necessarily comes from within quentin tarantino but the only other one that comes to mind is clown and that's not of course new region that was filmed here mm -hmm. and it is a, a french and canadian french and canada kind of thing from what i recall um but that's of course a library scene it's 
typically library scenes, campfire scenes, some of the movies that we've covered, like The Fog or Madman, maybe, have scenes sort of like this, but not quite like this. And not where there's a, almost a record scratch when this person enters the room and then they captivate everybody with their campfire story, which is basically what it is. He is the the rolling fucking rambling community museum come to fucking bust into your party and tell you all about the lore of the land. Mm. It it is that. The, it it really struck me as how do you break these kids isolation long enough for them to get a bit of information? Because I feel as though by doing it in one scene, there that feels long. And I don't mean that in you know, I was checking my phone or anything like that, but I did take a beat. Quentin Tarantino was a great, by the way, person to reference because it reminded me so much of several long scenes of dialogue that that dude peppers into all uh, sorts of his films. I, I kept thinking to myself, this has to be the most efficient way to do this. Because if you were to try to have people drop in exposition throughout the day, it would have amounted to several scenes spread out in the first 30 minutes or so of the movie. And then you would probably need to have an additional scene, perhaps in that snow cave, that gave you additional information about that place. As opposed to just having one guy tell you a story and then essentially, well, see you later. And <laughs> it makes it... Essentially, yeah. That he has been our exposition dump in the biggest way. Because they could have cut his character out and had a diary or a fucking record player with a mm. wax cylinder. I know you want it, Wes. Here's your wax <laughs> cylinder. I do. With the okay. fucking story. Me and Thomas Edison think that's the way of the future. You can do that and have no other person... Then they can't serve as a bonus body because, spoiler alert, this guy dies. And so he doesn't necessarily just poof and into the trees like so much Robert Smith. He he comes back again, not to impart any more information on them, unfortunately, but mm. as a bonus body. And he comes back in two scenes in a way. His death and the body discovery, which is fantastic. Really fantastic. Mm -hmm. So I love that they use this as opposed to some static, inanimate library scene for exposition purposes. And that we don't really get any more of it. We get them figuring out for themselves once they find things that add to the lore that this asshole has imparted upon them. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I mean, maybe another one, perhaps would be Mick from Wolf Creek. Man, that is a good fucking call, Lids. Man, yeah, you're right. Because that's another fairly lengthy scene, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And Mick does it in a couple ways. Sometimes you're tied to a chair and he's got his bowie knife right up your fucking ass. Or, you know, he's he's throwing this these fucking truth bombs <laughs> out willy-nilly to passers-by and he's just an unsettling dude at that point uh, but yeah Mick does this really good and it is a similar terrain in mm -hmm. that it is the opposite where it is just this vast bleak uncaring alien 
terrain where these people shouldn't really be, maybe aren't prepared to be. There is a certain amount of preparedness, which I'll talk about in a second, but like, aside from the fact that it's blistering cold and snowy in these Norwegian mountains, or blistering hot and arid desert in the outbacks of Australia. Otherwise, they're very, very similar environments in that they are isolated with these fucking guys. Mm -hmm. Mick poses, of course, a way bigger threat than this uh, roving community museum of a man. Yeah, that's true. This, this guy just has this vibe of like, hate the young man fucking sitting there with your organic coffees and your beer that I don't like and you don't know what you're doing here man and there used to be Nazis here man and they killed people and the people drove them out but they wanted money and they gave them money and then they spared them uh that is by the way the hitch of this premise the premise is is that these Nazis this curse whatever you want to call of it they're haunting the the, the land it, it there was a when i first saw this film my brain distilled it into if you steal their gold like it's pirates of the caribbean then you're cursed and then they will go after you but sarah didn't steal their gold so then it becomes if you just enter their territory then they will kill you and if you offer them gold, perhaps they'll leave you alone. And then they throw a monkey wrench in that idea. I want to say 20 minutes after they, uh, like toward, right towards the end of the movie, then then they they offer the they throw a monkey wrench in that concept. How do you interpret what these zombies are? Like what is going on here specifically? I think that it's very much like you said, the Pirates of the Caribbean, and. They sort of dance around, like it's Sarah's cabin, from what I understand. The cabin yes. belongs to Sarah. So had she even been there before? Was this her first trek up? Had they had she bought a fully furnished cottage from somebody that is local, that may be the roving community museum man, whose name is uh, Bjorn Sunquist is the name of the actor. They just call him the Wanderer. So I should call him the Wanderer instead of the roving community museum because that's a mouthful. <laughs> so the Wanderer. So maybe maybe the Wanderer had like defaulted on payments or something and it was his cabin or something because it is a fully outfitted, prepared, perfect, winterized, per wonderful cottage, wonderful cabin. And, but Sarah is skiing into it. So she obviously knows the lay of the land to a certain extent. They describe her as more sporty than the rest of the teens that are going up there. Her boyfriend included, who just seems to be an extreme snowmobiler or, or whatever. But she may have not spent a lot of time up there. Or maybe, maybe her uncle owned the cabin and he disappeared in the woods because he discovered the gold. Like, I don't know. They they really leave a lot of open-endedness. If you want to look for plot holes, there is a gaping one. If you're forgiving, like I am, where you're like, well, maybe Sarah did something to, to anger them. Maybe when they discovered this little spot under the floorboards, because like we do here in Canada, you can use outside as a giant refrigerator. So if your fridge breaks down in Canada, it's no big deal. You just throw all your food outside. Um, yeah. You can put beer in a snowbank. There's many, many times I've seen beer in snowbanks. You keep oh, yeah. your drinks cold in snowbanks. That's just what you do. But they've lifted up this little area in the bottom of the cabin and are using it as cold storage. Maybe mm -hmm. 
the last time Sarah was up there, she decided, hey, this will make a convenient fridge and pulled up this little hidden trap door and put some beers mm-hmm. in there. And that angered them, perhaps. So they don't talk about what woke them up at all. But you're right. They're chasing Sarah far before they're told of this gold or found the gold. Yeah. There's another question that Cass posed. Um, why do you think that they kept Sarah's head in that snow cave? If this was Vietnam War, I would have some very grisly explanations for mm-hmm. that. But it's not. So I don't know. And I don't know much about Nazi ways, you know, other than like you had pointed out before that their uniforms look cool. And that's part of the whole Nazi problem is that their uniforms looked cool. And the uniforms that look like them will forever look like Nazi uniforms, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And even if you're directly referencing them, like in Pink Floyd's The Wall in the film adaptation of that album, Mm -hmm. it is Nazi stuff. And you can't get away from looking anything like an SS at all yeah. without pulling that connotation. You can't look cool as a villain, as a, as a military villain and not look like a Nazi, unfortunately. Uh, yeah. So that's a, that's a real shame. But I, so other than that and a little bit of their uh, clinical trials and stuff like that, I don't know much about them. So I don't have an explanation other than staging. Cause I don't know when they find the wanderer's body, he appears either to have died in a very frightful manner with just this look on his face, or is he staged? Like, I don't really know. Because they use a headless thing as a taunting device not too long from now. They do do that, don't they? Yeah, they, maybe they just like to fuck around. Yeah, that uniform's tough, right? It's, it's almost as if they knew that they were going to be historically the bad guys. They got skulls on their uniforms. Why would you put that on there if you weren't actively, yeah, we're probably the bad guys, do you think? Because we got skulls on uniforms and shit. But the what ends up happening here is this cabin, things break bad kind of all of a sudden. Because once they realize that uh, Chris is missing, some of them seem concerned. But most of them, the person she just had sex with, looks like he is too busy like scratching his ass to really give a shit about anything. Um, but it's okay because he's he's not long for this world. When they kill Chris outside, they do decapitate her in some way, shape, or form. They have weapons. The thing to impart about these zombies, by the way, is at least in this film, I do believe it's somewhat different in the next film because there is a transference of, curse, in a, of a curse in a sense with that. But no, it doesn't. You don't turn into a zombie when they bite you, at least not in a very time-efficient manner. Not and also they use tools. They're, they're, they're just as likely to stab you with their uh, Nazi stuff as they are to to bite you. In either case, they're going to kill you. And also, they uh, have like beyond uh, superhuman strength because they crush a guy's head till his brain cartoonishly falls out of his. Body, what do you think about the gore in this? I know you love when shit gets a little slippery. I certainly do. And I'm not one of those people that splits hairs when it comes to CG or practical. And I don't know much about the making of this film as far as the production. But it seems to me that a whole lot of this is practical. And Mm. if it is enhanced with CG, I wouldn't doubt it because it does look so very good. The filmography, the cinematography... 
The production, the photography itself of this film is so well balanced. I can see why this was such a hit and not just that it is an indie foreign zombie Nazi film. It's written very well. That cadence of kind of riding the line between horror comedy and just absurdity that is so very dark and so very European works very well. The the look of the film. Shooting in snow is not easy. Shooting at night is not easy. And they're not playing very often day for night tricks. I think they do at the very beginning, but they when it's night, it's night. And when it's bright sun, sunny day, it's sunny day. They seem to choose overcast days for the most part and use additional lighting to make it look brighter than it is. So they're shooting mostly on overcast days and using um, additional fill light to make it look brighter than it is, I think. So it is just very tricky, but they do it so so very well and all of those things are found in the gore it's colored right it's lit well it spatters onto the camera lens at one point that i i don't know if that was pre-planned serendipitous perhaps coincidence it's just so perfect like a lot of the gore is is wonderful and even though it does get to brain dead levels and i love that the guy wearing the brain dead shirt gets killed in the most brain dead way and <laughs> his brain actually falls onto the ground which is just so hilarious but also very gory very dark and very well done that it almost looks like yeah that's what it would look like if a bunch of zombies grabbed a person's head and tore it apart <laughs> all those horror facts just fell right there on the floor there lids pretty much like when they pull somebody limb from limb mm -hmm. later on in their next set piece of gore that it does kind of fall apart a little that's a hard effect to pull off really mm -hmm. hard and some of those uh limbs that they've used for that effect just aren't up to snuff really when you're gonna be picky about the effects right right other than that i think that the gore is fantastic i really like it and it could be a little visceral for some people who are looking for a horror comedy but mm -hmm. it appeases that brain dead gore hound kind of feel there's a lot of, um, I think what takes the bite, pardon the pun, out of some of the, the gorier effects in this film is the zombies mug a lot for the camera. There's, there's moments in which if you were to insert Nazi zombie dialogue, it would be as though they're looking at the camera and just saying, uh-oh, or it's a living, <laughs> or something like that because of just like the, the goofy expression on their faces. Again, that doesn't strike me as comedic, but it definitely could be if you're in that mindset. I think what I find interesting about this film is they don't really take much time to explain away why these people become so instantly adept at killing zombies. I think that they acknowledge that they're zombies quite quickly because the our, our horror expert will inform them it's zombies. It's nice that they say the word as opposed to what's going on? We've never heard of zombies before. Night of the Living Dead doesn't exist in our world. And it, it descends quite quickly into people with chainsaws and mounting machine guns and willing to kill themselves with grenades 
just very quickly and they don't strike me as the type of maybe they just grow them tougher in Norway maybe that's what it is I think that part of it is explained in that they're med students not only have mm-hmm. they been explained that this is zombies they're also med students and Norway does have a mandatory military service to a yes. certain extent there's a lot of ways to get out of it so when they're driving up there in the car and they say like what do you do when you're stuck in an avalanche how do you know which way is up and you just spit one of the guys says which i've heard before that's in the sas manual it's in a lot of survival manuals like a lot of people who would ever find themselves in an avalanche or armchair avalanche enthusiasts will know how to tell which is up and which is down when you've been subject to an avalanche but he says haven't have any of us been in the army and you get some yeses and nos all around and knowing that it's conscription for men and women in Norway I'm sure that the amount would be about 50-50 in both groups like men and women so about half of them have had some sort of military training right so mm-hmm, maybe right. and whether you're going to dodge conscription or be exempt or for whatever reason you're not conscripted you would probably have an idea of what you're going to get into. So, I don't know, maybe there's cadets and you flunk out of cadets because you got flat feet or whatever it is that uh, <laughs> makes you exempt from being in the army in Norway. But, yeah, so maybe that's part of why they were so adept at killing zombies. I don't even know if that was your question. I just started going on about conscription. It works for me. Uh, it's all good content. I love picking your Cliff Clavin brain for all kinds of fun facts. There is, uh, this mountaintop is lousy with zombies lids. They got a lot of them. Uh, yeah. We thought there was, they, there was just a platoon, but no. No, I would say, I, I know that in the story, the wanderer had told a bit about there being in and around 300. I would say that's a fair number to assume that are here. Uh, uh, you know, and there's all kinds of um, examples of snow melting, ice thawing, and they find troops of soldiers. They'll find World War One and two bunkers. Uh, they found some recently. Uh, I can't remember where, but found old World War One uh, bunkers and stations. All this stuff just left there. Uniforms and guns and uh, I mean they produce so much of that stuff during the 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 big one but uh and then even down to you know ancient civilizations like that um did you hear that story I think it was like last year skeleton lake or something like that where they found all these bodies I think in and around uh Tibet or something like that it was like a thousand year difference and three separate groups of travelers all died at different intervals in the same exact spot near this lake and they found all of their bones in this huge mass grave but even though they didn't die together very very fascinating stuff um i would like to go to there (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) this group gets a little separated Uh, one of them goes off to find his girlfriend sarah in which he'll find instead a snow cave it reminded me a lot of uh the, the Templar caves that they found in England and, and things like that, uh, where we're going to get, you know, a, a sense of really what he is up against here, which is the Nazi zombies. This is where we get like our full, full on view of the foot soldiers. We haven't seen the good Colonel just yet in this whole narrative. Meanwhile, 
the the group is sieged by Nazis. It's daytime. Appreciate how much stuff happens in the broad daylight. I think it really contributes nicely to the overall look of this film. And when one of the most openly comedic things happens, which is the tossing of the Molotov cocktail, that is the the single most inept I think I can imagine anyone being in this. So maybe I take back what I'm saying. They all kind of came out of this looking like zombie killing machines. Mm, there's that one scene where they look like a grade A moron. So there's that. Yeah, that was a pretty uh, silly, silly scene. As far as comedy, I found that that was that that sort of tragic comedy at that point. And it was mm-hmm. slapsticky. And the two of them kind of running around like three stooges. It was it was very silly. They're very silly. I think the part where I laughed the hardest, which I always think is the funniest thing, is just the vision of the additional zombies rising from the snow. Because I don't know what it is about... I don't find snow very funny. You look outside right now, it's like minus 20 degrees Celsius right now. It's freezing goddamn cold. I, snow is not fucking funny. Snow. There's nothing about snow that's funny. But in movies, somehow... They make snow funny. And the, 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 the vision of the zombies rising from the snow. Was there a point w- during watching this where Cass was just like eyes rolled, the groan and the, oh God, this is not scary at all. This ceases to be scary. It has become, it has begun getting funny. Was there a point where there was a horror comedy watershed moment while they were watching it? I would have to ask them, honestly, I don't. No, I know they, there were several moments in the film. One was the Molotov cocktail scene where they were, oh my fucking God. There was one, she gets attached to characters quite easily. So the dude on the snowmobile was her favorite guy. Love that guy. Oh, everybody does. Everybody does. And you know, him, there's something about the way that he sutures his neck from the bite and then tapes it all closed and mounts a machine gun to his uh, thing and it comes over the hill and 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 really con- helps out rescuing them and then you got the three dudes together even though i would argue that the character of live goes out like a complete badass you have my uh, utter respect if you're making a movie and if anyone listening to this is making a movie right now you're writing a movie or whatever if you have a character that will pull a grenade to kill themselves and then other characters when as a Hail Mary moment, I instantly, I will remember that scene for the rest of my life. I think those scenes are always so fucking cool. I don't know if I have like a martyr complex or something, but I always just think those types of scenes are really, really cool and effective in movies. And I'm always so impressed by characters who... She went for a fun weekend of skiing and hot dogs and beer and pussy riot or whatever the hell they're listening to. And and all of a sudden she's like getting her entrails eaten because this is a very intestine heavy horror movie. They love intestines in this movie. So if you think that's squicky, you know, but uh, and they're pulling her apart. And it's almost like that moment in uh Day of the Dead, like choke on me. It's almost that where she's pulling out the grenade and just blowing themselves up. That's fucking badass. But no, Cass was really sad when that one dude gets literally pulled limb from limb. And uh, because she didn't much care for 
the final boy as a character didn't quite care for that one no one necessarily did and I, I like his arc in that I'm the med student that is afraid of the sight of blood and all my friends are a little concerned for me. Mm -hmm. And then flash forward to 40 minutes through the movie and he is covered head to toe. Blood is not a fucking problem anymore. <laughs> he has had his exposure shit. He has had exposure therapy that no one fucking wants. And he is nothing but blood now. Oh, man. And I, so I, I like that. But I, I like with uh, Venga, Venger. Vegard, Vegard, mm -hmm. the guy who is our action hero. Every time he touches a snowmobile, you got some fucking new metal playing in the background, and it turns into a Thrasher magazine sort of promo <laughs> sizzle reel. The footy that you're after when you're on the slopes, and you got your guy and his fucking action snow machine or whatever his Arctic cat. I don't know what he's driving, but yeah, and he's like taking jumps and he's popping wheelies like i don't know what you do on a skidoo but anyway he's that guy and everything he does is a hip-hop montage so whenever yeah. he's getting suited up to go outside it's that action sequence montage of mm -hmm. everything that he does so he's set up to be like our hero to mm -hmm. our hero cool dude kind of thing he's uh, poochie the dog <laughs> but he gets torn you, apart you just reminded me so hard of something that Cass had said while watching it. Because uh, you know you know, and I know, and anyone who watches the movie, they mentioned Evil Dead 1 and 2. I think a lot of those quick cuts is that film's montage to the way Sam Raimi does his action sequences. Lots of quick cuts. There's, If you're a horror fan and you like Evil Dead, you, there's nobody who does it quite like him. And when people try to imitate Sam Raimi's filming style, you know exactly who they're imitating. Um, there's a moment in which the the guy, who, our our final boy with the chainsaw, is standing there with a chainsaw, and he's got a his blue shirt on, and he's all covered in blood, and Cass just like with the biggest venom in her fucking mouth was just like, fuck him, he's trying too hard, he is trying way too hard to look like Ash right now, and I'm not buying it. Like there was nothing this guy could do to win them over, <laughs> like nothing. Not even if he said groovy just once? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> You're not winning me over. You're not Ash. Fuck you. <laughs> um, yeah, they do try very hard, but I, I thought it was effective. I found uh, it highly effective. Uh, I was in on this. I love the amount of blood on our final boy, final-ish boy. Um... I thought it was what? a final girl movie. I had misremembered the end of this movie entirely. I thought Hannah made it. Not just because I love her dreads. She makes me want dreads. Those are the kind of dreads that people should strive to have. I love her look entirely. I love her. I love everything about her. I love her uh, her moment, too, where she sacrifices herself, which I'd forgotten out about entirely because I thought she made it. Um, I... Uh... <laughs> uh... I want to talk about Hannah because for me, as you know, our listeners might know, uh, I suffer from a bout of uh, claustrophobia. I do not do well in small spaces. I'm a very big man. Uh, and so I always kind of feel constantly like I live in a world too small for me. And so when I'm seeing people who are literally trapped, and in this case, poor Hannah uh, is trapped underneath the snow, this is a great sequence that I find hard to watch. Um, 
it's it rem, it's very it's it's like trying to watch buried although that whole movie is you know that's a never again for me and the or um in the descent when that woman gets stuck in the little I, I i'm always just like why do people do this why do, why do fucking people do this like why is this fun uh this sequence is great i like that the way that the camera flips over it's just to disorient us we don't know which way um she's facing she uses the spit drool technique to discover to orient herself to know which way that she is to dig and i swear to god when that when her hand comes out of the snow it is such like a sigh of relief for me i could just imagine like oh my god okay like you are not going to die suffocating in snow or something like that she does die rather unceremoniously Cass uh, had said when we were watching it he did not just fucking axe his girlfriend and I, and I was just like okay to be fair if you see somebody and she had to have seen him because it's a big wide open area surrounded by Nazi zombies and he's flailing an axe around killing them at point blank range why would you silently walk up to him and tap him on the shoulder? Why would you do that? Because she's never worked in a kitchen before. <laughs> uh, That's all I got, man. That's all I got. You, you, you have to announce your presence. God damn it! I don't know if she had military training and she would know better, but like I don't know if she had military training and she would know better. But the uh, yeah, what she does, and this isn't the first film we've watched where people ax their loved ones. It seems to be one of our favorite things to have in <laughs> films we like. And we watched one not long ago yeah. with the autopsy of Jane Doe, where <laughs> someone got axed up pretty bad. But oh, yeah. yeah, she should have announced her presence because she was my hero 100%. And she's just gushing blood. And I like that they had to make this blood extra gushy because she's wearing a red sweater jacket type fleece thing that is already kind of blood red and the amount of blood soaking it, they had to put like something else there. So the ax handle is white. So we get to see the blood covering the ax handle, thank mm -hmm. God, or else it would probably be lost on us how much blood is pouring out of her at this moment. It is really sad though, because she was my favorite character. Yeah, it's it's tough. And what I think is interesting, let me ask you this. Uh, I, was think, I, I was really thinking about you while we watched this movie and I thought to myself, you're a very clean individual. It's one of the things that I associate you with. People say, well, what do you know about Lydia? And I say, well, she's an author. She uh, knows a lot about horror. Um, she uh, likes very detail-oriented, very clean. It's in the top five things. Uh, if you were covered in blood on the face, because I know that's particularly like face get face sticky with blood and you're surrounded by frozen water that you could just get that'll just come right off if you just take a second um i get it it's on the clothes there's not much you can do about that that's in there those clothes are toast but you could wash your face if you wanted to and none of them take five seconds to just little little face wash <laughs> get it in there and there's parts where they're blinking the the 
the fake blood out of their eyes. And I know how that feels. Not not nice. It's, it's a horrible feeling. That fake blood on your face is a horrible feeling to begin with. But real blood, if you're out there trying to keep fucking alive, you want to be able to see clearly. You're going to get more of this on you. You're probably going to be sweating, which none of them are sweating. But you're probably going to be sweating. So it is going to run into your eyes and you want to wash that off entirely. Mm -hmm. Sure, snow is cold and it's cold outside. But it's not going to like freeze your face like you yeah. you are able to. Yeah, that would be one of the first things I would do is clean my face off, not just to get it out of my eyes, but it would feel horrible. Yeah, it really, really would. Um, we haven't talked about uh, Hartzog, the good colonel. He's made his appearance. He's their leader. And I wanted to ask you, the curse seems to be coming from him. And it's giving me a necromancer vibe. Like, he he has the most intelligence. I wouldn't say that the the other... I wouldn't say the troopers are dumb. But he, he can almost psychically communicate with them. And it seems to me that they die if you do any amount of damage to them that would kill a normal person. Uh, obviously go for the head, that's the quickest way to do it, but they kill some of the other zombies, they don't even damage the head from what I could tell. And Colonel Herzog could summon more by screaming arise, which tells me that if you wanted to end the curse, you would need to kill him specifically, um, which they never really tried to do. Um, so that's how come he gives me off a necromancer vibe. Does he come off as a necromancer to you? No, he comes off as a type of person that they would choose via eugenics and blood ratio to be a commander in the SS. Mm -hmm. So according to the way that I assume that the Nazis would choose people higher up, um, according to what we what we know of the way that they thought he would be more powerful because to put it in terms of scientology he has a high level of satin vibration or whatever <laughs> so he's he would have this occult power to command his troops while alive he probably mm -hmm. had this sort of power over them he was for all intents and purposes had mystified his troops with his regal power born mm -hmm. in his fucking Aryan blood or whatever. I think that is more of the power that he has. He is, has Nazi magic. He has super Nazi fucking mind control powers because mm -hmm. he's just, he's the, the leader, right? So they just are so ingrained, that that's so ingrained in them. So if they would have killed him, so to speak, like the head vampire, I don't think all the other zombies would have just dropped. I think they would just stumble around blindly oh. going like, I had orders, I semi-forget them. I think I'm after gold, but I'm not sure. I'll just stumble around and eat people randomly mm -hmm. like a bee without a hive or a queen. I don't think they would just drop into the ground. So I don't think that there's quite that link there. Mm -hmm. But I do think that he's he's the one with the orders. He's the one with the plan. Mm -hmm. They're just following orders, so to speak. Mm. That's what I that's what I think, because I do get like the mysticism of it all. I liken them all more to mummies like sure they're zombies. We're told they're zombies. They behave like zombies. But with the curse element 
and the look of them, the very dried, mummified look of them, because they're not ishy-gushy zombies. And a lot of them are uninjured. There's not like, they're not dragging themselves along mm-hmm. by their hands while their guts are trailing behind them. They're not like holding their severed limbs and, and stuff like that. They're not limping along. They they behave so much to me like mummies. You've watched way more mummy stuff mm-hmm. than I ever have. Uh, am I am, am I crazy to think that they're probably more like Nazi mummies? No, you're right. And in fact, now that you say that, it's this watershed moment for me where my mind is opening up to this. They really do remind me particularly of mummies in and around Hammer era, but of their look, that very dried look. Because obviously they they don't come across as as a Karloff zombie and they don't come across as a, a Karis zombie because Karis is so uh, shambly. It's like, you know. What I think is so funny is that me as a daughter of an armchair Egyptologist, when you said they come across to me as zombies, or they come across to me as mummies, of, and I thought you were going to say Fourth Dynasty, or some sort like name and a region in no, Egypt. No, no, but no, Hammer, I, Hammer, or I was um, I, I I had my Egyptology phase as every kid I feel like probably had when when it seems to be a good backslide into obsession with death and the macabre and funeral rites and and stuff like that. But no, mm-hmm. I, I I wouldn't I could not. I could not sit here and and tell you honestly what their what kind of mummies they might remind me of as in terms of ap- actual Egyptian lore and mythology but in terms of cinema I could I could ballpark it for you but yeah I think yeah. Uh, I, I think you're essentially right they do act more mummies in the sense that they seem to be vessels or thralls to some ancient and ultimately petty motivation there's always mummies are often just doing something very uh robotically that they're either instructed to do by somebody or that they remember to do they're either obsessed with a a love or a great injustice or something like that from their living days i could see that honestly i think i think you're mostly correct honestly uh when we're down to our last two, this sequence uh, where Herzog grabs a hammer, gets his hands a little dirty. I don't, this dude is as fast as a motherfucker, faster than you want to be. Anywhere you want to be, this I don't know if he can burrow into the snow like the swamp thing and travel along the earth or something, or I don't know if if he can run like the Flash. I don't know where his. I don't know if he can inhabit any of the Nazi zombies that are there and just become Herzog like Agent Smith. I don't know what his powers are that he can get around so quickly. Just teleport. But he's anywhere you want to be. He's Jason fucking Voorhees. And this guy hammers this one dude in the face. And I think that I think what is meant to have happened is this guy falls into a tree and gets impaled in the stomach and his intestines, again, more intestines, get stuck on this tree branch. And then he tries to tear ass in the opposite direction and then just ends up disemboweling himself. I think of this scene 
more than any other scene in this entire film. And when people bring up Dead Snow to me, this is the scene that I immediately think of. Entirely. I'd have to say maybe intestines are the whoopee cushion of the human body. I don't know much about... Well, really. That's very funny, Liz. They're the probably the funniest internal organ we have. Yeah. They wiggle around. They slip around. They're hard to get a hold of. There's so fucking much of them. Like, there's <laughs> probably, that is the handkerchief, the ending handkerchiefs gang of, of med school, perhaps. <laughs> Fuck. Okay, you know what? Fuck everything I just said. You're right. That's very funny. I don't know much about dead bodies in in the clinical sense, but I have a suspicion (laughs) that intestines, because they're used as sort of like ultimate ridiculous things, whether it's a a war, a spoof on war, where people have handfuls of their guts, which is, on the other hand, to your point, an extremely terrifying, tragic thing to have happen that has happened so much and been so documented that we know as laymen kind of what to do if you end up with a handful of your own guts because it fucking happens and it is like the 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 weirdest thing that could go wrong the you know what happened today on my way to the office sort of moment in running through the forest and i've seen accounts of people getting i've gotten stuck by trees pretty badly i've seen photos of people who are walking through the bush not running walking through the bush and all of a sudden in the dark felt something on their face and wondered what it was turned on their camera phone as a selfie with a light on and realized they had punctured under their eye didn't even realize didn't even feel the branch go in and they're pouring blood and lucky they didn't blind themselves or stories of the person that was uh, on an atv and all of a sudden had a tree through his chest and lived because his bug shirt kept the wound clean enough by the time they got him airlifted out of there because he was so far back in the bush you know you hear these fantastic stories and to see it to see this even though he's in dire straits otherwise that he's just hooked on a fucking pine tree by his intestines okay it's funny if you're a med student yeah (laughs) i think uh yeah you know what i feel like you've uh I feel like you're right, though. Like, it is, it is like, inherently funny now that you say it that way. It was like, there's so much of them, like, in the hand motion you did. It was so fucking funny. Like, whoop, 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 whoop. But I feel as though in certain horror movies, like Braindead, the guy's wearing a Braindead t-shirt, so let's talk about Braindead. You have so much blood and gore in a scene that the guy is literally running in place like he's Wiley e. Coyote trying to get back onto a cliff that he ran, ran off the edge of. So that to me is the director, who's that, Peter Jackson? Peter Jackson is literally trying to look at how fucking funny this is on top of how gross and ridiculous it is. There isn't moments that cross that line to me in this film that are so obviously supposed to be played for last because it's like something a cartoon character might do. The snowmobile scene, and I think they try and rip it off a little bit in Wrong Turn 4, which was another contender for something we were going to watch for wintry, snowy fun. Um, I think this is the the scene that people find the most comedic as well. Mm. And a lot of why people think it is more of a horror comedy or, or forget 
all the dread, terror, gore, and horror that they've witnessed up until this point. But it's also once seeing it a second time, third time, fourth time, I think it gets more serious every time. Because what would you do? Mm -hmm. And the way he does it is very dry. It's a very dry kind of humor, if there's any humor here at all. But if you had this unbelievably fast snowmobile and the zombie in this position, what like what would you do? Yeah, uh, I like this. And I like that he gets to kind of do it twice. Uh, yeah, I like uh, this is where I like that he pulls this pocket watch off of this guy. Like Herzog pulls this pocket watch off of this guy and like sort of looks at it and closes it and puts it in his pocket. And that's where you get this notion, oh, they're collecting they're collecting things that have been stolen or things that I guess they believe have been offered to them. But I'm assuming it's stolen. Um, it, it is, I think, when it comes to the comedy elements of this, I strike it up to, I think I've mentioned this before. It bears mentioning again. Do you remember when we went to go see The Void in theaters and those two jokers behind us were giggling and laughing and carrying on and then when the when the violence could no longer be laughed off they got quiet and i told you i was like don't worry once this continues they will shut up because they won't be able to express their discomfort any other way i think a lot of times horror fans and they might get bristly at this because i don't know if you've known this about people who like horror movies lids we're kind of thin-skinned when it comes to people criticizing anything about us, I feel as though a lot of times horror fans are genuinely uncomfortable with the violence that they're seeing and it manifests as laughter because you're seeing something so violent, so gross that it becomes absurd. But if you look at things objectively, it is sad that these people went on a vacation and they didn't really do anything wrong and they got brutally killed and it is sad that this that they tried to come up with military tactics and they ended up burning their only shelter down and it is sad that they tried really hard to fight for their lives and they all got killed and they tried to survive and he kills his own girlfriend and this guy just wants to get back to the car and they're so close they're within spitting distance and all of a sudden this souped up colonel nazi zombie hammers you in the face and then you fall into a tree and you disembowel in yourself because them's the breaks. That's what gets you, that's what took you out. Not the Nazi zombie, you fell into a tree. Ain't that some shit. And, but people think it's because they're, they're uncomfortable. And then when you laugh enough, it's like, well, that must've been funny to me. And a lot of times people watch these films with fucking four, five, six people and they're drinking beers and they're eating pizza and it's this big social event. And what else are you going to do? I, I'm. It's not funny. Like I do. It's. It's. I like it. It's a fun movie. It's enjoyable. It didn't haunt me. It doesn't stick with me. But you have to sometimes acknowledge it's not funny. What you're. If this happened in real life, it would be very sad. Because Herzog has get watch, right? And our final boy, whose name keeps escaping me, but he has been through a lot. Lids. You see, he had to cut his own arm off not unlike Ash. He has had to cauterize his own wound. I like that he does it with the chainsaw himself, whereas his friend could, if I was, I was like, you need to cut off my own arm to stop infection, even though 
the funniest thing is there's no evidence that there's any infection from these bites. The Wanderer, I mean, they never saw the Wanderer, but he's dead. I rest my case. It's not like people's heads are reanimating or anything like that. And he does this. And then the second that he does it, looks like it looks like his dick gets bitten, but it really seems to be his thigh. I can't really say for 100% certain whether one or the other. And so he's bitten. He's missing an arm. He sees that the, the, the good colonel is looking for stuff. And so he remembers that box. And so he goes all the way back to the cabin. That's now burnt to ashes because of the Molotov cocktail incident, as we'll call it. And he essentially presents it to the Nazi zombies. And the colonel seems quite happy with it. You know, he's like, ah, got this box. And he seems happy with the money. And they seem to leave this guy alone as he gets all the way back to his car. But while he's getting his seatbelt on with one arm, Quite angrily, it gets stuck a little bit. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, been there. Nothing makes me more frustrated that when I'm trying to put on a seatbelt, it's like, doo -doo -doo -doo. it locks. I'm like, who's this for? He realizes that there was a very subtle scene that happened where Hannah slipped one of those Nazi coins into his jacket pocket. And you realize that that is what is still on his person. And then Herzog is at the car. Credits? Everyone dies? Question mark? Yeah. More Pussy Riot music. Which I looked at the credits to see if it was indeed Pussy Riot because it's like the only like Russian girl punk band I know of. And oh. it's not. It's some other band. They sound great though. Yeah. So that's nice. But yeah. And it's so tragic in the way that I... We've been following a lot of these characters. No one is inherently unlikable. Even our unlikable... Via V. Shelley from Friday the 13th, you know, our movie horror geek who's annoying to a certain extent, who also in this parallel universe gets laid and is a, a, a kind of a Barney rubble. <laughs> so even he isn't that unlikable. Even the super horn dog guy isn't that unlikable. They're all very likable, and it's, I never really hinge too bad on a character's likability or unlikability. But they're all, they all fight really hard. None of them really double cross any of them. Even this innocent coin is not a double cross. It was just like, hey, let's just try and pay off our student loans, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. So it wasn't like, it is all very, very tragic. Luckily, there's a sequel <laughs> that, that fixes a lot of this. I don't quite remember um, too much about the plot other than it was pretty relentless and pretty ridiculous. But yeah, I, uh, I I definitely find this movie super fascinating. It was a great pick to do for winter time. Uh, and it was really good to revisit it. And I was glad I got to show it to Cass and uh, really helped me remember a lot of things that I had forgotten about this film. I seem to have remembered the last 30 minutes of the film very, very well. And then the whole first hour of the film I did not remember well at all I don't know if it was because hmm. I kept I saw this movie for the first time on the movie network and when I still had cable and I seemed to have kept watching it I saw it once all the way through and then every other time I seemed to catch it it was the last little bit of the movie so I've seen I feel like I've seen the last 30 minutes maybe four or five times 
whereas I've seen the entire movie all the way through one time, and now I've seen the movie the entire way through two times. So more fresh in my mind now. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. It was the end sequence, which I think part of me just didn't want to remember, and I was retconning it along with portions of the sequel, perhaps, which I'm dying to watch the sequel now. Because because yeah. both our final boy, spoiler alert, Hannah, are in the sequel. So may, I think it might have, that of information has blended with you and why you thought she lived all the way to the end of this movie. Despite such an epic death and, you know, being very, very confused about her not returning at that point. And that final scene, I mean, there's all sorts of ways you can write yourself around the zombie being at the window and credits. There's all sorts of stuff that can happen there. And I'm, I'm glad it goes the way that they did because it does fall into the realm of Final Boy movie. It does. Um, so where are we going next for him? Next, we're going to stay in the snow and we're going to swap monsters from zombies to vampires and do let the right one in. One of my favorite vampire films ever. It has one of the greatest sequences in any horror movie in my humble opinion and i'm very looking very forward to discussing it i think actually this is another thing that my mom asked us to do a super long time ago and i don't think we ever got around to it and i always feel so bad about that my poor mom like you should do this for the show and i'm like ah no time for you mom yeah here yeah, I like this idea. Your mama has some great suggestions, so there. She does, huh? yeah. I'm glad that we're getting to a few of them, too. And wintry suggestions, so it fits really, really well. Um, lately, I have spoke with Amy uh, Jane Vosper, who you were on CBC Radio with not that long ago. She's on the Typical Books podcast, and I believe we talk about this movie at one point. We've talked about this movie on other things. So every time I watch this movie, for whatever reason, I think about Amy Jane Vosper and her film studies and her doctorate in horror film and female. So I, I'm really looking forward to watching this. It's been a while since I watched it. And we're watching the original, not the remake, Let Me In, correct? That's correct. We'll be watching the original You Know Me, always the films that set the table. We want to watch those ones. And I don't mind a remake, but in this case, I found the remake quite pointless and a little hollow and 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 i feel it was one of those situations where it was like when they remade the girl with the dragon tattoo five seconds after the girl with the dragon tattoo came out and they said well no one wants to read subtitles they're trying to remake train to Busan. they're trying to remake squid game they're trying to remake all these things that who are these people that they think exist that won't read subtitles or you could dub these movies. You don't need to read. Anyway, it's a whole thing. It's like, never mind. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. We're watching the original, not the remake. They're a fringe minority. They're, right? <laughs> they're a fringe minority. And on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.